Good morning. I guess we can get started. I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Monetary Studies at the Cato Institute. Um, it's a pleasure to welcome you to our 34th Annual Monetary Conference. Uh, in addition to this conference, uh, the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, uh, which we just uh, started two years ago, uh, has two other conferences during the year, one organized by the director of the center, George Selgin, who is also the editor for a blog called Alt-M, uh, which is the center's blog, and uh, the other by Mark Calabria, who's the center's director of financial regulation studies. So you'll see things posted uh, during the year about these two conferences. I think Mark's conference is gonna be in June this year, um, and uh, George will have a conference later in the year. Uh, I was told that uh, for those of you who like to tweet, um, you can use hashtag CatoMC16. Uh, a few acknowledgments are in order. Uh, these conferences take a lot of work to put together. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, our research assistant at the center, Ari uh, Blast, uh, who's done a yeoman's job in uh, helping with the conference details. And also our outstanding conference staff, especially Kiana Graham, who actually just joined us, but she hit the ground running, and Alessa, Alisa uh, Hagens, uh, who's also in the conference center, as well as Bob Garber and Brandy Dunn, who are in the marketing, marketing department. Um, I should mention that the papers uh, from the conference, the annual conference, are published in the Cato Journal. Uh, we have a special issue every year uh, with the conference papers. So, you can look forward to seeing those later on. By the way, these papers in your, in your folders uh, are drafts, obviously. They're not uh, uh, finished products. Uh, so if you have any comments or anything, uh, the authors would certainly appreciate hearing from you. Um, I hope you'll find today's program stimulating. Uh, we've built in some longer breaks, the half-hour breaks, uh, so you have more chance to talk to other people at the conference and speakers. Um, and as you know, we're in uncharted monetary waters, to be sure, uh, since the unconventional monetary policies uh, have entered uh, with the financial crisis back in 2008 and 9. Uh, who would have thought that nominal interest rates could go negative uh, or that central banks' balance sheets would reach such mammoth sizes or that monetary policy would be designed to suppress interest rates, encourage risk-taking, and inflate asset prices? fleecing those who depend on pensions and savings to finance old age? Or who would have predicted that the Fed would engage in large-scale credit allocation? Uh, of course, this shouldn't be a surprise to monetary historians or those skeptical of central banking. Uh, some fundamental questions need to be asked, namely, why have interest rates stayed so low for so long? Uh, why is traditional monetary uh, the traditional monetary uh, mechanism, transmission mechanism, uh, broke. Uh, is the Fed driving financial markets or are financial markets driving Fed policy? What happens when the Fed starts to raise rates? And most important, can we fix the plugged up monetary transmission mechanism or do we need to build a new system with more market discipline and less government intervention? That may be a somewhat rhetorical question at Cato, I guess. Uh, the distinguished speakers today will address these and related questions, but 
Before introducing our keynote speaker, I should mention that our luncheon speaker uh, will be Senator Phil Graham. He was originally scheduled to make uh, closing remarks, but uh, Thomas Sargent uh, unfortunately had to cancel due to what he called a shock. So I'm not sure whether that was exogenous or endogenous. <laughs> uh, and uh, he apologizes for his absence. Uh, I also want to thank, uh, mention uh, that uh, former Fed Governor uh, H. Robert Heller, who he tells me now goes just by Robert Heller, uh, is on board today, which is very good because he is also a former Commodore of the San Francisco Yacht Club. And we need his guidance in what could be very stormy weather ahead. Uh, and then I'd also like to thank John Allison, who is stepping in for Commissioner Giancarlo. Uh, he had a dropout at the last minute, so John will be giving uh, the first talk on the uh, first panel. And uh, Judy Shelton was nice enough uh, to take his place to chair the uh, third panel. So Judy will be with us this afternoon. Uh, now it's my uh, privilege to introduce the keynote speaker, Thomas Honing. Uh, as you know, uh, Mr. Honing is the vice chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. He was confirmed uh, by the Senate on November 15th, 2012, and joined the FDIC on April 16th, 2012, as a member of the Board of Directors for a six-year term. Uh, prior to serving on the board, uh, Mr. Honing was president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City for 20 years, uh, from October 1991 to October 2011, during which time he served as a voting member of the Federal Open Market Committee on a rotating basis. Overall, Mr. Honing was with the Federal Reserve System for 38 years. He still looks young, and he's with the FDIC now. So, uh, Beginning as an economist and then as a senior officer in the banking supervision during the U.S. banking crisis of the 1980s. In 1986, he led the Kansas City Fed's Division of Bank Supervision and Structure before becoming president on October 1st, 1991. Uh, as president, one of the great things he did, actually, was he hosted the prestigious uh, Jackson Hole Symposium, which brings together uh, the top economists from around the world to discuss monetary issues. Uh, and uh, Mr. Honig holds a PhD in economics from Iowa State University. Uh, please help us welcome Vice Chairman Honig. Well, thank you, Jim, and, and I want to thank the Cato Institute for this invitation, for an opportunity for me to speak. Um, I'm, uh, I'm usually when I come to a meeting like this, uh, I'm reminded that I'm, I'm the only one who voted no several times in a row, <clears throat> and they keep asking me, well, were you wrong or were you right? And I always answer, not enough time has passed yet. So I think that is the right answer, uh, but over time we will know whether I was wrong or right as we look at the economic systems going forward. And I'm going to talk a little bit about some of those elements today. Um, I would say as, as central banks have, have come to dominate financial markets, certainly the debate over their ability to deliver strong, 
long-run economic growth has become increasingly intense. Central banks and financial turmoil is the theme of this conference. And given the dramatic expansion of central banks' balance sheets, which Jim mentioned, and their influence over economies, it is a topic well worth our attention. And I congratulate the conference organizers for their foresight, I think, in, in selecting this topic at this time. I will focus my remarks this morning on two areas on which central bank performance is judged, monetary policy and macroprudential supervision in today's world. While a host of factors determine an economy's strength, these two policy instruments have come to play a dominant role in our economy, and their role going forward is a major subject of attention. I will suggest that monetary and regulatory policies have for some time been overly focused on the short-run effects at the expense of long-run goals, which has unintentionally served to increase uncertainty and economic fragility. Future success requires a policy move deliberately toward a more balanced, long-run set of objectives that we keep in front of us. Let me first talk about the dual mandate for U.S. monetary policy, which is established by Congress, and that mandate is to maintain long-run growth of the money and credit aggregates, commensurate with the economy's long-run potential to increase production so as to promote effectively the goals of maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term long interest rates. In reading this mandate, you might note the emphasis on long-run and long-run effects. As a colleague of mine once described, central bankers should take care of the long-run so that the short run can take care of itself, and I ascribe to that statement. In a world of discretionary policy, when the moment comes to choose between long-run goals and short-run effects, policymakers experience an enormous pressure to choose a more expedient short-run solution, deferring to another time concerns with long-run implications. This tendency can be seen in the long-run trends of short-run interest rates. So in the material you have is chart one, for example, which shows the real Fed funds rate from the 1960 to August 2016. And for comparison, as a benchmark, the chart also shows the average real GDP growth rate of near 3% for that period. And it is noteworthy that the real Fed funds rate was below the average real GDP growth rate for nearly 80% of the time. And it was negative for over 30% of the time. I think it's also noteworthy when you look at the real Fed funds rate, which averaged only 9 tenths percent from 1991 to 95, 2 tenths percent from 2001 to 2005, and a minus 1 percent or lower from 2008 to 2015. So regardless of what one deems of the appropriate U.S. monetary policy, it was, except in the early 80s, decidedly directed towards lower interest rates short run. Now, turning to macroprudential supervision, which has become more important, its objective might best be described as that of assuring the integrity of financial institutions, sound markets, and a reliable payments intermediation framework. Carrying out this mandate involves an extensive program of rules and supervisory oversight designed to achieve long-run financial stability, credit availability, and stable economic growth. 
As with monetary policy, authorities have discretion as to how they carry out the supervision mandate, which has led to different degrees of oversight over time. For much of the quarter century prior to 2008, for example, there was a systematic easing of constraints on bank activity, and most notably an extension of the public safety net to an increasing number of non-bank financial activities conducted by both banks and shadow banks. Commercial banks were given authority to engage in investment banking, trading, and broker-dealer activities, all with the backing of the safety net, while investment banks and other financial firms were permitted to engage in a host of bank-like activities, which developed behind it an implied support by the safety net. While the safety net was broadened over this period, capital requirements were allowed to weaken exacerbating the downward effects on stability. Chart 2 shows that from 2001 through 2008, equity capital supporting the industry's balance sheet, defined as a ratio of tangible equity to tangible assets, declined to less than 4%. This trend of lower capital continued a century-long shift in which market and public confidence in banks relied less on bank capital levels and more on the growing president's of a government safety net and backing. Chart three shows the longer run effects of accommodative monetary and supervisory policies. Total US debt relative to nominal GDP rose from 265% in 2000 to, over, to, to approximately 365% in 2008 and has improved only slightly since then. Behind this broad trend, debt within sectors also has substantially increased. For example, gross federal debt increased from 39% to 51% GDP, depending on how you count it. Consumer debt increased from about 70% to 100%. Non-financial debt increased from 63 to 74%. And U.S. debt extended to the rest of the world increased from 8 to 11. So leverage took over uh, an increasing portion of economic uh, trends. And these trends in debt have been described by some as a consequence of a global savings glut. It's the, it's the global savings glut problem. However, it is no coincidence in my mind that the trend followed nearly a decade of systematic and sometimes dramatic accommodative U.S. monetary policy and lower capital standards that encouraged higher bank and financial leverage. Finally, chart four in this section shows that despite these ever more accommodative monetary and regulatory policies, and despite the increase in financial and economic leverage, the growth rate of the U.S. economy has not increased. Indeed, real GDP growth during expansionary periods has decidedly steadily declined from more than 4% in the 80s to just over 2% today. So these trends suggest, in my mind at least, that the financial and economic shock experienced in 2008 did not just happen randomly. It followed an extended period of accommodated policies in which long-run considerations were most often discounted against the perception of immediate needs. Extended periods in which monetary policy catered to short-term growth objectives ever-declining capital levels among financial firms made the system increasingly vulnerable two shocks. As 2007 and 8 unfolded, the effects of these policies erupted and losses quickly overwhelmed the financial industry. 
Chart five shows the, the cumul cumulative losses and TARP capital injections in 2008 approached nearly 6% of total industry assets. Several of the largest financial firms failed, requiring unprecedented government support to prevent collapse, while many others appeared ripe for failure. The public and the market did the rational thing. They ran for the exits. The crisis was on. Now, central banks using unprecedented facilities, as was mentioned, injected enormous amounts of liquidity into the economy. In an important sense, their actions represented a decisive execution of the lender and liquidity provider of last resort, which calmed fears and did staunch the crisis. While it was the appropriate short-run response, I think, its extended duration comes with a substantial public cost. So let's talk about post-crisis. By the third quarter of 2009, an economic recovery was underway. Then as now, the month-to-month -month data were mixed. But the overall trend suggesting a sustained recovery, I thought, was compelling. For example, average GDP growth during the first year of recovery was 2.7%, which compares favorably to 2.9% growth in the first year following the 91 recession and 2.3% growth following the 2001 recession. Nevertheless, given the shock, most policymakers were uncertain of the recovery's durability and were loath to normalize interest rates regardless of the emerging favorable evidence. Long-run considerations took a backseat to the short-run concerns. In November of 2010, under the title of QE2, the Federal Reserve voted to purchase $600 billion of treasuries at a rate of 75 billion per month. Again, between 2012 and October 2014, the Federal Reserve under QE3 purchased 40 billion of MBS securities per month. Monetary policy throughout 2010 and beyond remained not only accommodative, but also represented an unprecedented policy easing into a recovering economy. As a result, a fragile equilibrium, in my opinion, fragile, dependent on low interest rates, has settled so deeply into the economy and financial markets that the difficulty of moving rates higher represents an unsettling force within the United States and global economies. Post-crisis macroprudential supervision. As monetary policy was steadily eased, concern arose regarding its negative long-term effects on financial firms and the broader economy. To offset these concerns, macroprudential supervision was touted in financial policy circles as a powerful force to balance any negative effects of monetary policy. Enhanced macroprudential financial rules and standards are tools that serve the goal of greater financial stability. But as a complement to monetary policy, they raise their own set of issues. If monetary policy is set to stimulate credit expansion and wealth effects, it is highly unlikely the bank supervisors will take actions that impede those policies. It's not the habit. Chart six shows the trend line for tangible capital to tangible assets for the largest US banks since 2012. Now this ratio does show increases from 3.6% in the second quarter of 2012 to five and three quarter percent in the second quarter of 2016. Before 2008, it was argued that requiring increased capital would slow economic growth. These arguments tended to win the day in policy circles, but do not hold up as data and experience show. 
Referring back to chart five, cumulative losses plus TARP capital injections for the 26 largest U.S. banks in 2008 was nearly 6% of total assets. Thus, should the largest firms experience losses in the future similar to those of 2008, those losses would absorb nearly all of their reported tangible equity capital again and place enormous stress on the financial system. My point is, better is not adequate. It's only better. While strengthening bank capital would serve the industry and the economy well, an effort is underway to back away from this macroprudential policy goal. The argument continues now, as it did pre-crisis, that increasing capital from current levels will hurt economic growth. To the extent that these arguments are successful, the industry and economy will be very poorly served, in my opinion. Macroprudential supervision and monetary, monetary policy are not tools for fine-tuning the economy, but are blunt instruments generally managed toward the same policy goals. The mandate for these policies is long-term stability, but too often the immediacy of the short term has taken precedence, and the cost has and will be great. So we need to change the approach. After nearly a decade of highly accommodated monetary policy and uneven supervision, the U.S. economy is growing more slowly than policymakers had hoped or expected when this policy cycle began. While it prevented a financial collapse in 2008, subsequent easing failed to deliver the expected economic growth and has left the system more fragile. And allowing the financial firms to operate at minimum capital levels fails to accelerate economic growth and leaves a system more vulnerable to shock, not less. This accommodative policy loop must change. To normalize monetary policy, interest rates must increase, which will temporarily put downward pressure on financial industry asset values and probably earnings. It is also understood, but less acknowledged, that if capital levels of the world's largest banks remain at current levels, these firms will continue to be vulnerable to losses that flow from higher rates and macroeconomic adjustments. Such consequences could weaken balance sheets significantly and undermine your ability to support the economy through the adjustment period, and this is a major fear. The challenge is to find a path that enables central banks to rebalance monetary policy without shock overwhelming the financial system and undermining long-term economic growth. One such path, at least to consider, is for interest rates to be increased in a clear, deliberate manner towards an announced long-term target range or rate. The timeline, adjustment path, and target range would be influenced by a host of factors, of course, including, for example, fiscal policy, which is now up in the air, demographics, and international events. However, once chosen and announced, the policy must not be abandoned at the first or even the second signs of stress. It took a decade to get to this point, and it will take time to return to what we like to think of as normal. Importantly, there should be no backing away from insisting on strong equity capital standards either. Capital should be set to levels that ensure the industry can absorb future losses and reduce concerns about its resilience. This requires building tangible equity capital beyond current levels, and this can be done also in a deliberate fashion. While challenging, there's clearly room to strengthen capital through retained earnings. You don't have, we don't have to force them to go out and raise enormous amounts of capital, which I know the issues around. 
Capital should be set to levels that ensure the industry can absorb future losses and reduce concerns about its resilience. While challenging, there is clearly room to strengthen these levels. For example, since 2009, the largest eight U.S. banks have paid out about $243 billion of their $431 billion in earnings. The industry, therefore, has the capacity to systematically strengthen capital and build industry resilience through continued building up of retained earnings at a defined pace. Importantly also, retained earnings would not be stale reserves, as is sometimes suggested as staunching any kind of recovery. Retained earnings are working capital that facilitates bank lending, enhances bank earnings, promotes financial stability, and supports long-term economic growth. While concern has been expressed in some quarters that requiring increased equity would lower returns to investors and raise cost of capital, there's ample evidence that well-capitalized banks trade at higher premiums than less well-capitalized banks and have a lower cost of capital over time. History also shows that without the government's safety net, the market would insist on banks having tangible capital levels, in other words, owner equity, higher than currently maintained. And as a matter of public policy, we should not allow the benefits of the government safety net, if we're going to have it, which are meant to protect the public to flow as a subsidy to private investors. So let me wrap up in summary. I am suggesting that both monetary and macroprudential policy need to focus independently on the long run. Interest rates need to normalize and bank capital needs to be strengthened. Policy cannot stay on its current path of low for long rates and return to lower capital without undermining the resilience of the financial system and the economy and without inviting harsher future adjustments as occurred in past episodes when policy was highly accommodative. We have an opportunity to strengthen banks, the financial system, and the economy to achieve real long-term growth goals. If the view of policymakers shifts from the short-run effect to the long-run sustainability, these goals can be achieved. Thank you very much. And I think I'm open for question, if you have some. Maybe you could just handle the questions, probably easier. Oh, sure. Yeah. Happy to. So we have, we have about uh, 15 minutes for questions. Uh, please state your name and affiliation and uh, keep it to a question rather than a speech. <laughs> OK. I see a hand right here. Start. Right. Okay. Uh, Thomas Atterbury with First Pacific Advisors. As you think through sort of this combination of, as I understand what you're saying, sort of less about a safety net, more about equity within the banking system, how would you look to attack it in a place such as the U.S. where sort of the non-banking systems providing much of the, I shouldn't say much of, a large percentage of financing for the economy yeah. to get to the same objective you're trying to, you're trying to reach? Yeah, the shadow bank issue uh, kind of. Um, well, first of all, um, much of the shadow bank funding comes through the commercial bank industry, the hedge funds, many of those institutions. I think the, some of the money funds, we have other issues with net values and, and things that ought to be changed uh, to deal with that. But I think 
you know, uh, long-term capital, for example, it was banks and others lending to them. If we as supervisors are looking at the banks in a systematic fashion and they are engaged in highly leveraged lending or highly concentrated lending, there should be a means to uh, address it through that process, through either increased capital or oversight in some fashion, because I, I'm, there's a constant argument for we have to regulate these non-banks or something bad happens. And the problem with that is usually the effect of regulation then becomes more of a safety net as well. And so you're, you end up broadening. That's what happened, I think, in many ways with the investment banks when the crisis hit. They all got brought into the safety net immediately. Everyone knew that's what was going to happen. And I think it actually facilitated the excess that was going on there. The market was looking to something else rather than the institution. So I don't want to see it. I don't want to see the, the supervision or the regulatory framework expanded. And I think we can do most of it through, um, th through our banking supervisory apparatus. Now, there are some other issues with some of the largest um, money uh, funds and so forth. And that, I think, um, we have to, if they're actually playing the role of middle man, or woman in this case, that's fine. People make their choices. But if they are within that, beginning to build their own hedge funds and uh, using other, f then I think we have some issues that need to be addressed in some form. I don't know exactly what that is yet. And I don't know how uh, systemic it is at this point. So those are good questions for us to look at, but not just blanket it and, and overreact. So I think way in the back here. Yes, Mr. Hernan, I'm Perkorovsky. I would like to touch base on an issue. Uh, we all are favoring stronger capital requirements. And I don't think that many are discussing that. But worse than low or high capital requirements are different capital requirements for different assets, which most definitely distorts this long-term allocation of bank credit. When are we going to get rid of those distortions? Well, that's okay. So that's a very good question. In other words, why are we relying on risk-based capital, and the and the allocative effects that has? Uh, the only thing I can tell you is I'm on the record for a long time. I don't care for the risk-based capital as a supervisory tool, for, because it does it. It assumes knowledge on my part that I don't have. But people now, since I'm assuming that I have it and I'm acting as if I have it, act accordingly. So when I put a zero weight on a sovereign instrument that happens to be halfway across the world, I'm, I'm encouraging investment towards that that's not in line with the risk that's there. And you get distortive effects, as we've learned the hard way over and over again. I think that risk-weighted systems are good as internal tools to the industry. In other words, if I'm a CEO, I want my folks to be testing my allocation of capital, where the risk is, making assumptions, talking with me, because they change by the moment, don't they? Risk. So I, as an internal tool, I think it's great. As a supervisory tool, not. Now, why, and then, so what do you put in place? I use the leverage ratio, tangible capital to tangible asset. Not because I, I think I have some kind of insight into the assets, but because I don't. And I want to know how much that institution can absorb in losses before I have to take it over. 
or give it a blanket guarantee to keep the economy going or whatever it is. And when it's 3%, think about it. The margin of error is really thin. And even if it's 5.5% today, think about, so you have, let's say you have 10 institutions, they only have 5.5% loss absorbing capital. One goes down, you have losses in the others, so you've lost five. The others, no one knows what their ultimate losses will be. Because if it's even just 3%, they only have 2% capital, so you begin to create a panic. If you had something like 10% or more, which they had it in an earlier period, then you lose 3%, okay, I have time, I can reorganize, I can begin to think at it. Or if I have an idiosyncratic failure, I don't bring the whole system down necessarily, as, or as likely. Um, and that is, that is why I think the leverage ratio as a supervisory tool is much more adept at achieving the goals. So, yes. Hi, uh, Victoria Guido with Politico. Um, you know, as you talk about the change in approach um, that, that you're advocating for, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, given that we, we just had an election in which, um, you know, the, the Congress is now fully Republican and um, the, the president-elect has expressed an interest in um, deregulation and, and, you know, dismantling Dodd-Frank, I'm wondering, as, a, as an independent regulator, does that change the way you look at, um, you know, how you might want to approach regulations in the coming months, um, you know, would, especially given that, you know, you might agree with him on some of the, or agree with, with the Republican approach on, on some of the things they might want to change, you know, would you use that um, as an opportunity to change um, some of the regulations that are forthcoming? Well, I, I'm, I'm a uh, servant of the law, so as long as the law is what it is, I will carry out my duties and not change the law before Congress acts. Uh, and so that's, that's the only answer I can give to that. Um, certainly, um, we, we want to have the right outcomes, but you know, if they ask me my opinion, I'll give it, but I'm not gonna decide what's, what they should be passing and not passing in the future by my actions. I think that's not good. So, yes, right here. Then I'll go in the back again. Hi, Man Arbonne, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. You spoke about uh, the need for monetary policy to go back to normal, to have a normalize. I want to know what exactly do you mean by that? Uh, because uh, I remember last year, Chairman Bernanke had an op-ed at Brookings where he said that um, the equilibrium rate or the Vixelian rate was uh, consistent with the market rate. So I want to know what do you mean by that? So. Well, I, I don't know what Ben was talking about. I didn't, I'm not, I didn't read the, the uh, blog or whatever, but <clears throat> my idea, look, here's something I, here's how I answer the question. I, I find it difficult to accept the idea that zero interest rates for eight years is normal. <laughs> Do I need to say more? <laughs> it's not. And it distorts like crazy. It distorts the economic allocation of resources because it's, it's a price. Do you know of any price of any commodity that does well with no price discovery when it's defined as zero? What happens? So I, I, I don't buy that. 
So what should it be? I, I think that the market should have a bigger role. I think the bond market has been dislocated for some time, and we need to move uh, back away from zero. Now, what it is, well, I would start by looking at the long-term history. I wouldn't, now there's ideas of we ought to move there immediately, you know, from zero to whatever it is, say two and a half percent, I don't know, 2%. I don't, I don't know what the number is in terms of what I would suggest right now. But I think you have to, if you have eight years of, a, if you have an equilibrium that's set up around zero, the move back to a new equilibrium at higher is not necessarily simple or quick. And if you do it too quickly, do you do what we did in 37 when we increased rates, or reserve requirements dramatically? Or the other issue is if you move too slowly, do you really ever get it corrected? So that's the challenge that the Federal Reserve has. I don't have a magic solution to that, but like I said here, you, they need to think through that. We have issues of fiscal policy. We have issues of demographics. We have issues of international. What's the world? How can we move back in a systematic fashion without turning the economy apart and let us have long-term growth without misallocations as the extent they are, and then let's go with it. And uh, I think that's one at least fair approach to consider. Way in the back here. <clears throat> uh, Walker Todd, currently at Middle Tennessee State University. Hi, Walker. Um, hello, hello. Tom and I are old friends. Um, <laughs> The question, uh, uh, we had a presentation during um, job interviews at the university a couple weeks ago. Uh, some finance professors did a presentation on what's happening in the ETF market. And I asked them, remember how in the run-up to the crisis we had uh, collateralized debt obligations and then we had CDO squared and yep. CDOs cubed? Yep. And I said... Is anyone watching the ETF market to see what's in there? Like on the day of doom, can the ETF issuer deliver the product? And um, surely we haven't gotten to the point of ETF squared, ETFs of ETFs, etc. And they said, yes, it's abounding. So the question is, well, what are the supervisors doing about that, if anything? Um, I, you know, other than watching it, I, you know, I, it's not like, you know, it's not like we're not aware of things. Uh, you know, when we did the leverage, highly leveraged lending, we did step in. ETFs are, I think, an instrument we do need to watch. I don't have, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know that we're going to cap them or, uh, you know, one of the other options is to see what is inside the, the, Various instrument, which is probably a good a good suggestion. So I'll, uh, I'll I'll relay that on. Thank you. Yes, right here. Either whomever. There's two two hands up. I, we'll get. Well, we only have time for one more question. I apologize. Excuse me. Hi, Carl Golovin, and the Fed info. Uh, question for you. you. Mentioned some of the terms you used: growth, distortion equilibrium, uh, how is perpetual 
growth through an inflation of credit possible in a finite system? Isn't there a, a need to focus on more of an economics of equilibrium? And as far as distortions, doesn't the system of credit fundamentally distort, whereas the constitutional monetary units of gold and silver would circulate and there wouldn't be the fear of systemic collapse because the money would still be there in the outlying parts of the, the world circulating. Uh, and there wouldn't be this anxiety that the whole pyramid can collapse instantaneously. So what is the path back to a constitutional monetary standard? Well, I don't know that there is a path. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen it seriously considered by anyone. Um, the, uh, the other part of it is just the fact is you still have panics under gold standard. You just have different reactions to it, but you still have people running. You still have credit collapsing. You still have 1907-type panic going on. And uh, if, if you're going to have a credit system uh, and you're going to have a capitalistic system, you're going to have cycles. It's, it's, you want to minimize the consequences of that over time, and that's a fair question to ask. What are we doing to minimize it? And, um, that's a debate. That's what part of the debate over central banking is right now. And I don't have a magic answer for you. Um, you know, it, it's, it's argued differently by different people. I'm a, I'm a supporter of central banks, but I do think they need uh, stronger bounds. Uh, I've, I've adv advocated for discretion within boundaries uh, over time. And, we'll, you know, Different people have different opinions, but I don't see us going back. Maybe we will, but I don't see it happening. I haven't seen no serious discussion about it at this point. Yes. Okay, one last question, because I did mean to get this gentleman. <clears throat> uh, Max Gilman from the University of Missouri. Um, uh, Lombard Street, uh, Walter Badgett said the most efficient, the reason why you know, the UK was uh, leading the world in finance was because they had the minimum reserves and each bank held almost zero reserves, just the Bank of England held reserves for the whole system. So in a fiat system, the FDIC essentially has that pot of money, which is the reserve backup for the whole system. And the main job of the FDIC is to issue uh, and collect risk-based premiums from the members within the FDIC. The people who are outside of the FDIC created the bank run, the investment banks in the, in the last bank. So <clears throat> my question is, why doesn't the FDIC include all of the financial intermediaries and, and issue risk-based premiums for investment banks, pension funds, and uh, insurance, and that way create a risk-based, price-based system of regulation rather than a quantity-based asset uh, capital requirement base because the risk-based system is more efficient, I would think. The, uh, pr the price system is more efficient um, than the quantity. Well, the, I, I don't, I'm not sure I would agree with that. I think, look, we try and do a good job on setting risk-based pricing, but it's not a market-determined price. It's an administratively determined price that we take into and we get lobbied like crazy uh, for this or that and so forth. So I don't know that it's you know, you do this on a nationwide basis for every kind of financial institution. I can just see the, I can just see the, the industry that will set up around that. Capital. The reason that I prefer capital as, and us, us as a second 
That is us, the FDIC, is a backup in the sense of should an individual institution fail, you have the wherewithal to, to provide for a transition. It is because that's what the market originally called for. It was capital. I mean, when you started out, before you had the, even before you had the OCC, I mean, these banks had 50% equity to assets. Then you put the government in it and it came down and then in the Fed came and it came down and the FDIC it came down more because you have this safety net. So I, I'm trying to say we want the, we've chosen that we want the safety net and I think most, most Americans do. Uh, now, I want to make sure that the investor remains the first absorber of loss like they're supposed to and we remain the second or third absorber of loss should it fail and there are retail customers at risk. I, I think that's the right, the better system. I don't know if it's the right system, but it's a better system. And so I'm not, a, I'm not for extending our reach. Uh, power is a wonderful thing, I suppose, but it's not something that I think necessarily turns out well. And I don't, I don't know that this would either. I don't know that it would be more efficient at all. So, hey, thank you all very much. It's been a lot of fun to be here. Thank you. Thank you.